the leaders of the city decided to focus on business, not on social problems and race and things like that. I think the city too busy to hate put Atlanta on a trajectory that allowed it to really become a business mecca for the South. You know? That was just great leadership and business leadership here with you know some of the players in, in Coke and, and Delta that was not going to allow race and things like that to jeopardize the business. So, this episode of the Todd Capital Millionaire Podcast is sponsored by Blacker Pockets. Blacker Pockets is an online urban real estate investing community designed to educate and inform you on the benefits of investing in the inner city, as well as provide you with the tips and strategies to successfully do so. You can find Blacker Pockets on Instagram at, at Blacker Pockets. Welcome to the Todd Capital Millionaire Podcast. This is episode number 80. My name is Charles Ogilvy, also known as Top Millionaire, your host of the podcast. I get emails all the time. People want to know, how can I join Tide Acquisitions? Well, we finally are opening it up to more people. Now that we have a great software platform that allows us to track everything, which is really the reason what was holding everything up, is we wanted to make sure that we could be 100% transparent. We want you guys to know everything that's going on and with our software limitations, we weren't able to do that in the same way that we were doing that on the investment club side. On the investment club side, we used a, a, a platform called Vivio. You could log on, you'd see your investment account, you'd see what you bought, you could track everything. Then we went over to the app, which is even better. So now we have Valeo, and so you can track everything directly through your phone. And now they have a website. So now we have something that's just as cool for the real estate side. And what's cool about that is they also have an app and a website. So we won't tell you what that app is because we want you to become a member first and sign some confidentiality agreements and whatnot. So you don't go off and try to compete with this competition. Man, the book Zero to One really opened up my eyes in regards to competition. A lot of people think that competition is good. Competition sucks. You want a monopoly. That's not the quick tip, but just a FYI, you don't want competition. Competition serves other people, but it does not serve you well. So with that, I'm going to lead right into the quick tip, man. This is something I'm super duper passionate about. If anybody knows me, I'm really a get started, get fancy later type person. It's something I've mentioned on here. It's something we've highlighted in multiple people's stories of how they went along. You guys heard how Nita started. She started writing signs on cardboard boxes. She didn't establish some marketing budget. She didn't do all this crazy stuff and then say, okay, I'm going to start. She started with what she had and she got out there and she got it going. This weekend, I went to Camp Vlogmaw. It was a huge production, multi-million dollar, maybe $10 million production put on by Tyler, the creator. And I was so impressed by how professional it was, how organized it was, how thorough it was, how technologically advanced it was. They streamed it all on YouTube. They had people paying with Apple Pay. They did everything super high tech. They had these sensors in your armband so that you could go in and out so they knew what was going on. It was just an amazing production, but it wasn't always like that. Camp Vlognaw actually started as a block party, a free block party where he performs, he brought out some of his friends, and it's grown into this almost something that rivals Coachella because it just started. A lot of us, what we'll do is we'll have this idea of being Coachella and we aren't willing to have the block party. And a lot of people won't do that block party and so they never get to Coachella not realizing that Coachella wasn't always Coachella. So I want to encourage you, if you have a business idea, don't be afraid to have that block party. Don't be afraid to do a free investment club. I always tell people like they're going to say one day that Tide Capital started as an investment club. It's not the goal. That's where we started. So the quick tip really is just start small, level up and improve as you go. It's really the best way to start a business. You've got to start with what you have. You don't need to go out and get funding. You need to go out and create this amazing website. You've seen how Facebook looked when they first started. You saw Google look when they first started. You know the whole Coke story, how they sold 17 cans their first year. We, if we're going to be successful in business, have to be willing to sell that 17 can year. We have to be willing to start with nothing and grow and reinvest and don't spend money and don't pull money out of the business too early. I believe that that's all we need to, to really do it is just to take action with what you have. So to end this intro, I want to talk to you about our black business leader, African-American business leader. I don't like the term black. And that is Mr. Herman J. Russell. 
Herman J. Russell is the founder and former chief executive officer of H.J. Russell & Company, which was a nationally recognized entrepreneur. He was a nationally recognized entrepreneur and philanthropist, as well as a highly influential leader in Atlanta. Over the course of 50 years, Russell amassed one of the nation's most profitable minority-owned business empires, turning a small plastering company into a construction and real estate conglomerate. While a sophomore in high school, Russell purchased his first property, which he later developed and leveraged to pay his college tuition. After graduating from Tuskegee, Russell performed small-scale plastering and repair services until he inherited his father's business, then known as Rogers Russell's Plastering Company, upon his father's death in 1957 when he took on larger projects that ranged from home building to real estate investment. By the decade's end, Russell's business portfolio had expanded to include general contracting services through H.J. Russell Construction Company. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, Russell's construction empire grew and diversified, paralleling the changing racial status quo of African-Americans. Russell's track record of successful joint partnerships on large-scale projects with white-owned construction companies bolstered his business reputation across public and private sectors. During this period, Russell owned several construction and real estate companies, among them H.J. Russell and Company, H.J. Russell Construction Company, H.J. Russell Plaster and Company, Paradise Management Incorporated, DDR International, and Southeast Land Development Company. In 1994, Russell's construction businesses were recognized reorganized under H.J. Russell and Company. During this time, the company reported annual sales estimating 150 million, with project offices in several cities from Miami, Florida, to, York, to New York City. By the 21st century, the Atlanta-based H.J. Russell and Company was nationally recognized leader in the construction and real estate development industry, as well as the single largest minority business enterprise real estate firm in the United States. If you guys want to learn more about Mr. H.J. Russell, there's a great book about him called The Building Atlanta. It's probably one of my favorite books. And what it really sheds a light on is something we're going to talk about, something you kind of heard in the introduction of this show was just the importance, in my opinion, of business as a factor of social justice. I'm not one to kind of dwell on social justice. I think it's important but I think that you can't have one without the other. You can't have social justice without economic justice. You can't have economic justice without social justice. You need both. And so I think that that is what we really should be pushing towards. And if we had to choose, we gotta at least push that economic justice button. So with that, you know, I thank you guys all for listening to the show. This is episode 80. You guys don't know how much it means for the strangers that come up and say, hey, like, I mess with your podcast. I don't know you from Joe, but I love your podcast. That really means a lot. And my goal is to continue to scale and grow up bigger and to hopefully create what we talk about in this show, which is in Atlanta, they have this saying called that they're the city too busy to hate. And I think that that's something we should try to adapt across the country is we're too busy to hate. We're too busy being productive to hate we're too busy investing we're too busy running our own businesses we're only we're too busy pursuing careers we're too busy being great parents we're too busy being great husbands and wives to hate other people i think that's something that we're going to definitely see as the economy improves so you guys know who i am charles oglesby also known as Todd millionaire this is episode 80 check out the show so this this is the todd capital millionaire podcast this is episode number 80, which is amazing. I was looking back at some shows and I saw that we interviewed Credit is King, Will, and that was like episode 25. And I was like, wow, we really done that many episodes, but we have, which I think is really a testament to the amount of success that there really is out there. Um, because we haven't even scratched the surface on the people we could be talking to. So we're 80 episodes in, 80 different people, 80 people doing great things. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Todd Millionaire, <clears throat> founder and the director of the Todd Capital Investment Club. We have 300 members on the investment club. Also, are opening up Todd Acquisitions. We have some really cool software that allows us to work with multiple people now. So if you're interested, let us know. Send us an email and I'll invite you to that group. Thank you all for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to share the stories of successful African-American investors and business owners. We believe that business and investing 
are the true keys to financial success and generational wealth. Make sure you leave a rating and review, preferably a five-star review. We appreciate those. Those help us spread the word and get more people to know what we're doing over here. Today, we have a brother named Christopher Mitchell. He is a graduate of Jackson State with an engineering degree. He is also the associate broker at Real Estate Grooves in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a fixed investor and he just started investing full time. So that is a huge accomplishment. Welcome to the show, man. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And congrats on your 80th episode. That's pretty big. Uh, it is. It's, it's, I didn't know it'd get this far, but very good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, um, where are you originally from? You live in Atlanta. Are you from Atlanta? I actually, I'm a Atlanta native. Uh, uh, it's funny because uh, I actually grew up in East Atlanta, but as I got older, we moved further and further east. So I started out in East Atlanta, actually, and moved out toward Decatur, and then my family is still out. My family's actually in Snailville now. So. so for people who don't know what that means, what does that mean? Well, I think a lot of times it's just, it's like in a lot of major cities where people say they're from Atlanta, but they're not actually from Atlanta. So um, to be actually born and raised there and it kind of it moves further east. So it's still in the metro area, but not actually Atlanta. So before we get into the, the nitty gritty, I kind of want to talk to you about Atlanta real estate on the whole. A lot mm -hmm. of people are moving into Atlanta. It seems like an, a, a market that's either heating up or it's just super duper hot right now. Um, yes. How much yes. longer do you think it has to go? Do you think that there's still some some room to grow or what? Are, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, one of the, oh, at least my, my philosophy or my perception a lot of times boils down to the economics of it. So when you look at a city like Atlanta that's constantly bringing in more and more business so you know we have heavy hitters like coke and delta that have always been here but then you bring in you know big players like mercedes-benz and porsche and that bring good paying jobs to the area which only drives you know housing up more and more so i think we're going to see um potentially you know over time you'll see a correction on a national scale but i think locally here in atlanta we'll be padded from that a little bit more because of the the economics we have here locally. We have a lot of business, great paying jobs coming here. So. Yeah. What's, interesting about, what's interesting about Atlanta is it seems like it's similar to Texas where there are a lot of good paying jobs, but the real estate is still affordable. I will say it's interesting to see different areas because everything downtown is getting, it's so expensive. Right. You know, I literally am in the process of um, a deal where um, I'm looking to purchase a property, um, so maybe 40 grand more expensive than I could have gotten it earlier this year. Just, just off of the sheer demand because of the area and people keep moving here. It just keeps driving it up. That makes a lot of sense. It's not that the prices are just going up. There's a lot of the demand because people are moving to Georgia. A lot of times people will, they'll see the stadium and they say, oh, the stadium is going to increase property values. Um, what's your take on that statement? I think it's, I don't think it's necessarily um, a matter of the stadium going to increase property values more so that the, the area is going to see the same shift that you see in, um, when they initially did the stadium, I'm sorry, the, the turn of field um, and things like that where um, I remember when I first initially wanted to start investing, I was looking at a duplex in Bond City. So it goes to show like the, the opportunities were there, but the stadium just created an opportunity for those that had cash to, to win, of course. I think it's I think it's a player in the in, in the whole grand scheme of things, but I don't think it's a major factor by itself. You know, you have the belt line, I think that by itself may have more of an impact than the stadium. So what you're saying is it's not so much the stadium as much as the development that starts going on around the stadium. That exactly. makes perfect makes perfect sense. So there's been a lot of, I mean, I'm always, for, a, for the longest time I was looking in Atlanta to buy, and I was looking to buy something in Atlanta. It's tough to find good areas to buy, especially if you're like me, which I'm a long distance real estate investor. Yeah. What are some good areas to invest in? Because like you said, 
there's Atlanta and then you have like all these other parts that aren't necessarily Atlanta. Yeah, 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 these other little areas. Um, and it really just, from my perspective, because I'm here, I, I'm looking at a, a wide range of opportunities. So, you know, I would argue, you know, easily just uh, initially say there are good deals everywhere, but, you know, you have to consider competition and things like that. So the 30310, 30314, 30315, this, this is like the West End, the Sylvan Hills, Westview, all the Oakland City, that, those areas, Southwest Atlanta. Is seeing the big uh, investment being made from developers on all scales, you know, from little guys like me to the bigger guys that are doing um, Pittsburgh yards and things like that. So um, I would, I've, I've seen a kind of a cause and effect thing. It's very obvious, but a cause and effect thing that we're seeing here in mo much of the Atlanta area where you're seeing these mixed use developments come up. Right. And then from there, they're an anchor for a lot of economic activity around that. So something like the OGM plan, I think is, we're gonna see it change to something really nice for that area. And you'll see the real estate, you know, thereby being uh, impacted as well. Do you, do you think it's too late to find deals in Atlanta? No, 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 it's, it's harder. It's much harder, it's harder. It's, I, can even, I can acknowledge the difference from last summer, you know, I think I bought my first property last May. I can acknowledge the difference in finding deals last last year than it is this year. So I know it's harder, but there are definitely good deals still out there. So what did you do before real estate? So I originally went to school for computer engineering. I moved back here, um, uh, started off in engineering for about a year and a half, just kind of focusing on that before I decided <laughs> it was time for me to get my real estate license and kind of pursue that that interest I have. Um, and I kind of did them both parts. I did real estate part-time until it became full-time and I kind of had two full-time jobs. And um, like I said, this summer, um, I made the switch full-time to engineering, I'm sorry, to real estate. So I've been doing that for the last few months solo. It's been quite an intense ride. So. It's pretty cool that you said that you had a career and you were selling real estate on the side because that might be something that people are looking to do. How did you navigate it so that you could successfully do both and then become so successful at the real estate side that you could leave the actual nine to five? Um, that, um, I will be honest, required a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm very, I try to be very efficient when I put my work. So. Um, my first few deals, a lot of it I was able to do from the convenience of my home, my computer, you know, uh, outside of the appointments I had to make in person. I think it kind of it requires a lot of discipline, really, to be honest. Um, it was I actually feel <laughs> like I was starting to work myself into the ground, trying to manage both of them at some point. I was fortunate enough to have a, a job where I had the flexibility in my schedule. I could pretty much come and go as I pleased with the, as long as I got my work done with them, they didn't really have a concern. We had core hours, but um, if I had an appointment to see an inspector at 10 or meet a client at whatever time, um, an extended lunch, I was able to do that. So that kind of, that was a major help, but really just came down to um, really having the courage to kind of not be stopped to have that relentless attitude. So I, I like sleep, but I like I like money better. <laughs> How are you fitting in like the showings and the open houses and all of that? Because you have a nine to five. Were you just booking them after hours? Were you booking them on weekends? Or, I mean, you said you had the flexibility in your job. Um, how much did the flexibility contribute towards your success versus just scheduling things outside of the nine to five? I think the flexibility allowed me to be flexible with the schedule with dealing with clients. So sometimes, a lot of times, you know, you're dealing with buyers, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with their work schedule as well. So you have that to consider. I think it became difficult when I started to invest and everything moved to my time. So I couldn't schedule things always uh, after work or before work, especially. Uh, investing is what really put a strain on that, to be honest. When I was just doing agency work, it was a lot easier. I was actually with a different firm at the time that was less than uh, half a mile away from my engineering office. So 
I could literally go to a closing, you know, go to the office, take a the paperwork and go back to the engineering office all in a few hours. So it was really easy in that regard when I first started. So open houses, of course, on the weekends and seeing clients, you know, kind of fitting that in. Very, once again, going back to being disciplined and having to sit and do my schedule every weekend to prep for that. But um, once I started investing, that became much more challenging because my first investment property was literally on the other side of the town, other, other side of the city. So I was going from Alpharetta down to Jonesboro um, and, and on my lunch breaks. <laughs> In Atlanta traffic was it just wasn't happening. The investing actually made that really a challenge. So you had a good job, you're working as a computer engineer. What motivated you to get into real estate? Uh, I think I've always had an interest. Uh, to be honest, my I tell my, my parent, my mom uh, all the time because I remember growing up watching my mom, my aunt, my cousins. It's like four or five of them all together sitting around my aunt's table, getting them, you know, step, studying for their license together, kind of uh, supporting each other in that effort. And all of them eventually got their license, and um, I think none of them are in real estate now, <laughs> but you know, they all kind of pursued it. So watching them pursue that at a young age and then kind of seeing the potential, I think, for me, um, one of my business partners, um, good friends, is. His dad used to always give us these real estate books. So I wish dad, poor dad, and a lot of these books that kind of poured into us at a young age, kind of kept feeding that, I think, that that, that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think once the opportunity came about, I couldn't, I couldn't resist it. Yeah. It's so funny. If you listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast, like 99% of their guests cite Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Probably like 99% yeah. <laughs> of the people who are on my podcast mentioned Rich Dad Poor Dad and I feel like in some instances that book makes you kind of resent employment like you just you see the end game you're not you're not and and it's tough to dedicate 120% to something where you already see the end game where you could dedicate 120% to something that has your last name attached to it the thing you can leave to your kids and your kids kids legacy uh, you know, it's funny because I have friends that have observed my journey from saying you know, I want to get into real estate and watching flip and flop and talking about it all the time to saying, okay, I'm going to do it to here I am, you know, really deep into this now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have some people around me that want to take that risk and want to bet on themselves. But a lot of times, you know, for one reason or another, a lot of times it being fear preventing them from taking that action, I think. Uh, rich dad, poor dad kind of forces you to look at it from a very black and white perspective. Like, you, know, right. you can you can deal with your emotions on another end, but you know, from a logical perspective, you know this is the better path for you in the long run. What you want yeah. to see in life It's it's an amazing book. It's it's so funny. Like, I I read a lot of books. I'm a very big reader. Audiobooks, all that stuff. It's literally my favorite book of all time, and I've read a bunch of books. And yeah. it's unquestionably my favorite book of all time, just because I've never read a book that really just changed your complete mindset. I've read a lot of books that have altered my mindset. I haven't read a book right. that changed my mindset. And I think that's, that's the reason why it sold so many copies. That's the reason why it's the number one personal finance book. There are a lot of good books out there. Yeah. I can't really name a book that's like that. I had a friend recently ask me about because I went to school for engineering, they said, well, how do you get into finance? Investing? Where did that, that interest come from? What did you, you know, how did you, it's knowledge base. And I said, it started at the young age. And one of the first books I remember was Rich Dad Poor Dad. I understand the yeah. assets like, I mean, get goes like, whoa, 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 right. whoa. Uh, you know, my parents are paying rent. I want to collect rent. This is, you know, this is something we look at a little different. So. I feel like the unfortunate thing is to, to people who haven't had that mindset shift, a lot of them can't really relate to the conversations that I'm trying to have with them. So I'll, I'll have this conversation with my mom or sometimes even with my wife and I'll tell her like, hey, we gotta do this, this, this. And they're like, ah, I'm just trying to get a raise. Ah, I'm just trying to get a promotion. <laughs> and it's like, I don't care. I gave myself a promotion. Last year, I told my boss I needed to be paid more. He gave me a raise, but it wasn't the raise I wanted. I gave myself a promotion through multiple ways. And I tell people that the promotion that I gave myself is only gonna be bigger next year because it's gonna compound. 
it's going to compound the right. next because I'm going to get better. My skills are going to get sharper. So what you did in flipping flipping homes when you were working is probably that much more efficient now. So the bonus and the raise you gave yourself while you're working for them, now that you have 100% of your free time to focus on just really maxing out your bonus, it's going to be that much more substantial. So it's like you can, you can sit there and you can wait 10 to 15 years, and that's what the book Rich Dad Poor Dad exposed you to. Is it kind of showed you the end of the life for both dads. Like this is what his dad's life turned into. He did all this education. He worked yeah. his way up the ladder and he ended up losing. Versus the, the other dad who not only did he retire super duper successfully, he just handed it off to his kid. Life changing book. Life changing book. So what did your first flip look like? How did you find it? How did you finance it? And how did you fund the rehab? And exit. How did you exit? So I think the story with that starts with me finding my broker that I have now, my mentor, um, kind, of, kind of like a big brother to me, especially when it comes to real estate. Um, Justin Giles, uh, he has, I met with him, I wanted to say uh, around this time, two years ago, um, potentially to move to his firm. And we talked about investing and I knew I was at a great firm, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, really great about teaching me to be an agent and customer service and helping buyers and sellers. But I was never going to learn how to really get into investing. So my end goal, of course, is always to get, is always been to get into development and, you know, we're talking residential commercial development. So, you know, to me, it's like I could sell, but it's not going to get me there. So I ended up moving my license to his firm. Um, I want to say in December, maybe around January, February, we had a, our first guru seminar, home buyers and investor seminar. And I watched him present to a group of people about, you know, if you have as little as five grand or four grand, you can start investing and how this is done. And, you know, it just sounded like, I don't know, it's interesting, but let me put this to the test. I mean, it makes sense, but uh, so I kind of, um, I remember talking to him after that, like, okay, well, I'm ready to leverage some of this cash that I have saved. How can we do this? And I want to say that was, like I said, that was in February, by May, end of May. Um, he and uh, he had put me in contact with another agent in the office, and her and I purchased our first investment property together. Nice. And that was, it was a, that was an experience, to say the least. <laughs> I want to walk through it because I think that story might be helpful to the listeners. Yeah. Um, well, she um, she actually found the property with through my broker. We kind of put the deal together and found the finance and all that kind of what we all the resources we needed to get the project started. Right. So we bought the first property for I want to say it was like sixty seven five. Um, we got a rehab loan for twenty k. Um, we were looking to, it's a three bedroom, two, two bath, dark home. Um, we're talking no more than 12, 13 square feet, maybe. You know? um, no, I think it was 1400, yeah, 1400 home. So we purchased it. Now this is, uh, it was it was a bit of a ride because um, we, quick, we quickly realized this was not a great partnership. <laughs> Um, it was great in the sense that we were both taking action and, you know, kind of getting out there, but we had two very different views on how this investment was to be executed and, you know, you know what our priorities and focus were. So I think there was more of a design focus on her part, where for me, being, you know, the one that was responsible for looking at the documents and spreadsheets, I'm always looking at costs and expenses. So, um, I think one day we had a conversation about windows and it just blew up the entire partnership really. And it's funny looking back at it because, you know, it was, a, it was probably the most stressful experience I've had in my life thus far. Um, and I've really not been put to the test like that ever, but I learned so much that I'm, I'm actually grateful for the experience because of the value that it's brought to me in my life from the skills I learned to connections and contacts I have to the fact that I'm doing this all the time. So. Right, right. But, um, so we bought the, we in the midst of the renovation, uh, my partnership kind of deteriorates a little bit. And to, to put it nicely, it deteriorates a little bit and we kind of 
uh, struggle through it. We really do. It, it, it becomes very challenging at the end and we get to a point where I realize this project is not going to yield the return I need it to. And this is going to take a lot longer if I continue to focus on it. So let me diversify <laughs> my options here and um, kind of mix it up. So I went out, I want to say maybe, I want to say September of last year, I bought my first property solo. And so this was a few months into our rehab together. I bought another property on the side because we were looking to do more properties together, but we realized that this first one wasn't going well. We both kind of focused on our own things outside of each other. So I bought the second property and then that's when I started to see really how easy this can be. You know? yeah. so, um, I ended up, and I bring that, that into the story only because the end of last year, oh, you want to, the exit, that was another testimony in itself because um, I actually, the second property, I bought it for 80, I bought it for 74, and I put 20 into it, I want to say. Again, on that one, got a rehab home for 20 on that one as well. Um, but they ended up both being listed for sale at the same time on the contract because the first one took so long. <laughs> And the second one, I was moving pretty fast because I had a point to prove to myself and my supporter. Mm -hmm. Which is helpful sometimes. Yes, yeah, that pressure. You know, my dad always says pressure in the bus pipes to make diamonds. So, you know, that kind of forced me to rise to the occasion. So, from there, I, um, like I said, I'm going to say November last year, my birthday. Um, I remember going to the office to do a workshop for some of our new agents. And um, uh, both of my deals terminated within a matter of hours. Uh, the first one, um, we ended up getting them both under contract again, but it was a matter of uh, a second. The one I had did by myself ended in appraise. It only appraised for 89, which is crazy because I bought it for 74 right. and put in 20. And it only appraised for 89 because there was not enough activity in the area. Mm. So I knew the value was there. You know, I didn't do anything outrageous or over improvement. It's nicely done, but. There was just wasn't enough transactions in there to support the, the price I was going for. So um, through my network, I was able to get it sold, cash buyer, no appraisal. So I got what I wanted. I ended up selling it for 116. I think um, I sold the one that I had to partner with for 118, five. And, um, but once again, both of those were cash deals. And that's once again, grateful for my broker, his help with that because um, that was a matter of two weeks, you know, once you get those on the contracts. So right, the week before Christmas last year kind of just brought my whole year back together because <laughs> my birthday was the end of November and I was really ready to call it quits. Like my first deal went south really bad. I'm stressed out. My second deal, I felt confident about what I was doing, but the numbers didn't support what I was doing. So now I'm doubting myself and I just was ready to call it quits. But um, uh, it was a grateful, it was a long, it was a long year last year, but it taught me a lot to be where I am now. So you had a deal that didn't appraise. How did you get around that hurdle? You, you kind of hinted at it, but I kind of need some more help to understand that. So um, because of the market here in Atlanta, you have a lot of buyers here, especially institutional buyers that um, I want to say the last two renovations I did, the first two offers I got was from a very popular uh, property management company here. So you got a lot of institutional money that are buying up these properties that we renovate and then they're putting them on the market for renting or some of them are doing these short term rentals and things like that. So um, that worked to my advantage because if, and those buyers don't typically care about appraisal as much as they care about the, the return they can residual they can return. Right, so right. They can generate, I'm sorry. So if they can make numbers work in 116, you know, they would. I think I had a list for 120, so they got to deal a little bit. But, you know, it's for me, it's cash. You know, it's two weeks, no closing costs. Typically, they don't have, they don't want any repairs or anything like that. So that allows me to have an end buyer on a couple of my projects that, you know, kind of is my safety net. What's interesting is it kind of sounds like the way you did that is after the first two you kind of become your own comps at that point. Yeah, it's like that first one is the most difficult one. That's gonna cause you the most stress, the most headache. 
and then you you kind of have the ball rolling to the point that it turns itself. Exactly. I had a I had a wholesaler reach out to me. Um, I want to say earlier this year with a list of properties, and one of the properties was literally walking distance from the second property I did by myself, the one I did by myself. And I immediately got excited, and I was like, "Yes, this I want this because I know what I can get in that area now." And, I got excited and I went to check MLS just to see, you know, what kind of activity had been going on there for the last, you know, for six months I wasn't paying attention. And I want to say, last time I had the time I checked the previous before that, my property was the highest selling property for 116 in that area. And I mean, you look now, you that's very common. You know, we see prices go up to 130 now. So I understand now how some investors are actually coming in and buying cul-de-sacs or buying, you know, rows of, of houses because they can buy flip one and just move down to the next one and keep doing yeah. it. It's yeah. kind of like a money machine. It's interesting. I was looking at uh, properties in Atlanta and you would see like those blocks of homes that were just all boarded up homes. Do those still exist out there? Yep. Um, that's that area, for example, some of that the areas that are being gentrified and, being converted, <laughs> some of those areas you can find. Um, like I have one of the, one of my good friends and uh, agents in my office. She renovates in that areas quite often. I mean, that's pretty much her focus. And I told her I want to get into that area that you're in. You know, the West End area, the West Side. And, um, I mean, she took us on a tour of some of the properties. I mean, you're seeing four or five houses in a row, boarded up with the street number the address number, you know, spray painted on the door. And, you know, she'll say, well, because you have to think a lot of these homeowners, they own multiple properties in the area. So uh, I think one of her sellers owned maybe 40 or 50 properties in the area that they were offloading maybe five or six at a time. So um, there's still opportunities like that. But I, like I mentioned earlier, when I was going on that tour with her, we were looking to get a property for 89. Mm -hmm. That same property now, you probably wouldn't be able to get less than 120. Well, it's. I was going to ask you why people aren't buying up those those areas, but it seems like the only feasible strategy is to buy all the homes in that area. It's an area where you can't just buy one because you'll have the nicest house on the baddest on the worst block at that right. point. Or you have to. You just have to. Sometimes it's it's a it's a risk factor because some of these properties. You know, if you don't know what you're doing, you can get in there and lose your cert really right. fast because these renovations are very intense. This is not something where you're coming in renovating a bathroom, right. doing a nice, doing a pretty color on the walls. You know, you're you're typically adding square feet. You're dealing with flooring and foundation issues, roofing mm -hmm. issues. You have, to, you have to really know what you're doing when you get into those level of renovations. And a lot of times you have a lot of cash for those kind of renovations. So mm -hmm. you're seeing a lot of a lot of newbie investors come to this to Atlanta or they've been here and want to start investing. They get into wholesaling, they get into, you know, some of these cheaper flips like I'm doing because it's less risk involved. You know? Absolutely. I have a project over there that I'm trying to do that. I mean, we're looking at a renovation of potentially, you know, 90 to 100 K. That's, to me, that's, that's intense because, you know, too many wrong decisions. You're having really bad problems. Right. So, you mentioned that you used a rehab loan. I kind of want to talk to you about the financing there because what did that look like? What did the overall financing look like from the purchase to the rehab to the down payment? Were you guys using a bank? Were you using private money? Were you using hard money? What did that look like? So we were actually using hard money. Um, I've learned a lot since that first deal. So that first deal, I thought, I had heard so much about hard money. I didn't, I didn't know if it was good or bad or different. I just, I just kind of went with the, the referral. This was somebody I was told that could get me funded and they could help me. Um, I did my due diligence with that person and kind of made sure they weren't leading me down a sketchy path or anything. But um, I realized it actually was just a broker for Lending Home, which is a very popular national. Um, company that does this they fund renovation loans so um i when i first started i became you know of course part of stepping into any business making yourself aware of the playing field so and especially coming from a tech background i became um i was uh, introduced to a company called ground floor a while back a few years ago 
and I saw that they were doing very something very similar to what I wanted to do, where they were taking house properties and kind of um, securitizing them so that they could raise, you know, raise funds, pull funds together, and then get the renovation done. So I kind of took that approach of business model for myself with Mitchell Realty Group, and that's kind of how we take cool about it. So in this particular case, for example, to the first house, I used a hard money loan. I think our down payment, we were expecting, I want to say we were expecting like 15 and it ended up being 20. So, you know, we were looking at four or five days before closing, trying to figure out how we we're going to throw an extra five grand. And it, just, it was so crazy, but we made it happen. And um, so, of course, hard money is expensive. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it for somebody that doesn't know what they're doing because if you don't know what you're doing, it's, it's a great resource. You can move pretty fast. Um, I love it now. Um, I've actually gotten a team of different lenders that I use now that kind of I know to use for different projects and things like that. But um, for for that, we leveraged 25k or 20k, I think, for that first house. And we from there, the renovation loan they covered. I want to say. Um, seventy percent of acquisition, acquisition payment, and they covered one hundred percent of the renovation. Ideally, they'll cover ninety percent of acquisition, but you have to have the experience. Once you've done enough exits, you meet that qualification to do that. But so we kind of took a risk, and um, we I had a, I had already had Mitchell Realty Group from my work as an agent, so. I just kind of started using that to start my investing. That became, now it's primarily investing. Um, and that's kind of how we set up most of our deals now to the point that Mr. Realty Group is the kind of buying the entity, but I have a group of investors that I pull capital from. When you said securitizing these properties, what did you mean by that? So I said that because if you, for me with ground floor, um, if you go to their, if you're familiar with them, they will give you an option. So they'll set it up where, um, let's say, property A has a return of 20%. Um, it's going to take 12 months, and this is what we're going to do in that. You know, it kind of makes it an isolated investment. Um, and then they'll have another house, maybe in a different city, that's kind of set up in a similar way. So I initially, my first property, I did that. I had 20, 20K down payment. I broke into blocks 5K. That's kind of become our minimum investment now with the Realty Group um, for our investment group. So I uh, did that. I leveraged my personal capital I had saved. And of course, my business partner had some. And then the rest we kind of raised from investors. And that we, it's just easy for us to kind of manage from breaking it up to that, that way. But I quickly realized it can be a problem when it comes to raising capital and growing. When you do it that way. If I have an investor that wants to give me 70K to invest in real estate, and he sees, okay, I have three properties. Well, if he has a choice to pick, he's gonna pick the one with the best return in a short period of time, or you know, the least amount of risk. Whereas I know I can get the renovation done, I can execute the investment, that's gonna help my business grow. Um, now I've shifted to more of a, sort of a similar of a hedge fund approach where I just pull the resources together and I deploy it as we see fit. So opposed to letting my investors pick the property, I handle that part and um, let them kind of take a more passive role. You have to do that because if you don't, they can kill the entire thing. They don't realize oh. that. Yes. Yeah, it's like if, just because you don't fund one deal doesn't like, they all impact each other ultimately. Right, right. And that's, you have that's to move from a, from a, at the helm of a, of a firm like this, you're looking at, you know, the overall direction of where you're going and what, what your end numbers need to look like. You're not looking yeah, at exactly. Right, right, right. That's dope. It's dope because you took action, you found problems, you created a super dope solution that's now a hedge fund. So it's like, that's kind of what happens is your, your, your solutions to problems become really dope stuff. So it's yeah. kind of cool. Man, so how, many how many properties are you working on right now? So right now we only have one active renovation going. I have three properties that we currently own, two that we're selling, one that we're renovating, and then the, we have two that we're looking to pick up now. We just have some delays with the transaction on it. One has a tenant, and 
another way. I think we should be closing on that here next week sometime. So. How do you manage the different investors, the different properties? What kind of software or what are you using to help manage that? Man, that's crazy. Um, I don't know how to answer that because it's so much. <laughs> I, um, I, I'm very uh, in tune with my spreadsheets. That's kind of my anchor to uh, this. Yeah. Different spreadsheets for different reasons. Um, I'm very, you know, well, I guess with my tech background, everything is digital with me. So I try to keep things saved and have different tools like on my website that allow me to kind of manage contacts and things like that. Um, my honestly, one of the best things about this has been um, employing my family and friends. So as yeah. my organization has grown, I've actually been able to bring on people. So, you know, my first slip, I was driving from work to Jonesboro every day to check a painter's work or a contractor's work and meet to pay people. And then um, at some point, uh, my dad got involved in the picture and he was kind of doing this home improvement thing on his own. And he's been doing construction and that kind of work for a while. but. Um, I kind of told him this kind of in conversation told him about the stress I was having with my business partner and I told him what I needed. I was looking for a project manager that I needed to be at work, but I could make decisions. I could pay people. I could execute. I could make it to the bank. I just can't physically be on the site every day. So he, he volunteered for that on the second project, trialed that out and that, that grew into now. My brother comes, he works full time, but he helps as well on every house that we've touched. Um, my wife has become uh, an asset in my organization as well when it comes to design parts. So um, I, I like design. I did it. They like that stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, it took me two four and a quarter trips to realize this doesn't work for me. I was in here two hours looking for all the material I need. I need, I need to delegate this to someone else. So, um, and, it, and it becomes stressful when you get really into it and it's, it's overwhelming. So, yeah. um, and now that I've like I said, my best friend and business partner, he's here. Um, he moved here this summer and he's been a great, great asset in that because he's managed one of my renovations for me this year. So that, I think that's what I'm about, is to really grow at a scale that I didn't really see before because once you realize how much help you have to manage it all, I mean, you can focus really become, and it's, it's really easier, you know, and I can, exactly, I can focus on the things that allow this organization to grow in the direction I see. Right, right. That's that's you hit on a lot of really cool things. The first is that as you build your business, I think one of the motivations, one of the the biggest things, is being able to not not necessarily save people, but provide something that if they did need to be saved, then it's there. And I think that's super important. I think that um, creating a business helps not just you, but it helps everybody who you touch: your friends, your family, your community, your tenants your contractors, so it's bigger than just like your bottom line. You're also feeding a lot of families out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the next thing you said is that as you delegate, it kind of helps you scale. And I had a conversation with Marlon on an episode, maybe like 20 episodes back. And he said that once he stopped doing all the day to day, he actually made like three times more money because he started just focusing on like the big picture, the, the, the big dollar, the top line, not just not necessarily the expenses. And so he yeah. kind of put himself at the top of the company. One thing I noticed is there are a lot of really dope people in Atlanta, man. What's his name? Top hedge fund manager. I think that's his name on Instagram. Like he's that's killing it. I, Juan Pablo's out there. Jay Morrison's out there. Like there's a lot of, and there's probably people I don't even know who it, like are just flying the radar, like Ramon Tooks. Why do you think Atlanta has more of that than any other city in America? I, I don't know. I think um, for our, uh, on a grander scale, I will say, I think it started years ago when the leaders of the city decided to focus on business and not on social problems and race and things like that. I think the city too busy to hate put Atlanta on a trajectory that allowed it to really become a business mecca for the South. You know? um, that's, that's just great leadership and business leadership here with you know some of the players in, in Coke and, and Delta that was not going to allow race and things like that to jeopardize their business. So I think that on a grand scale has some play. And then I think um, when it comes down to like 
culturally, I think for us, I mean, outside of the airport, you know, it's going to constantly bring people here. But I think for us, music and entertainment, you know, I think before it was just music. I think when Tyler Perry started to really grow his business, and we started to see film move here, heavy as it did, yeah. it's becoming entertainment. Now. So that's only amplified, you know, everything that you have going on here. And now, of course, once you get enough big players here, business kind of grows from there. You know. So I'm gonna wrap up the show. I'm gonna ask you a few, I guess, personal questions, and then okay. we will call it call it a night. So the first question is, what does an average day look like for you? Uh, it's hard now to say an average day because it varies. It depends on what phase I'm in, I guess. So right now we're in a rinse and repeat kind of selling everything from this year's inventory, kind of buying up next year's inventory. So I feel like uh, I'm behind my desk a lot. I'm on the phone a lot. I'm kind of looking at uh, deals we're looking to get and kind of making sure I'm setting myself up for success in that next spring. Um, but a few months ago, I was in the truck every day, you know, running to Home Depot three or four times a day, um, trying to go to, you know, pick up tile and doors and windows and things like that. So it just kind of depends on the phase of where we are. Um, I don't have to worry about that as much, like I said, because I have my dad and some other help, but sometimes it's, it's no, nothing like, you know, being there on site yourself to make sure things get done. Right, right. Who is somebody that you look up to and why? Somebody I look up to. Um, obviously, my my mentor, Justin, top fund manager. Uh, um, uh, Robert Smith, I think is his name. Uh, uh, Elon Musk. Uh, certain certain visionaries, I feel like that kind of take something that's only in their head and you know kind of share with the world in a way that's kind of special. So those are kind of some that come up. Oh, uh, locally, I think. Uh, you have players like Edward Perry um, and Herman J. Russell, obviously, you know, and his products. He's created a massive A lot of people outside of Atlanta don't know who he is. What is your favorite business book? Favorite business book? Um, outside of Rich Dad Poor Dad, we talked about that one, I think. Lately, I've been reading, um, I think I had it actually. Lately, I've been reading a book. I haven't really finished it yet, but it's been something I really enjoy so far. Um, smarter, faster, better. Um, so I've been enjoying that one lately. And then I don't know if this is appropriate, but actually, one of the most inspirational books on business I've read. Uh, but uh, Big Weed was really great when it comes to business. Interesting. Um, that, and it actually, it's been very reminiscent to my story in real estate because he kind of took a chance and really kind of stepped out on faith and had the right support to really see something grow into something really special to the point where you know, he's seeing his dream unfold. Yeah, it's actually a guy, he was in real estate, doing really well and um, the crash came in 08 and he kind of had to figure something else out. And um, that was his that was his entrepreneurial venture there and it turned into something really amazing. Wow. The crazy thing about like we, aside from like the controversial stuff, is that it really is a good business. Like you have a customer base that loves the product. The customer base is used. They buy it like every day, multiple times a week. If you can get in the game, it's a good industry to be in. From a business standpoint, I'll say yeah. that. It's, a lot, it's, really, it's really competitive right now though. That's one thing that I see, like everybody wants to get into it, which in my opinion kind of looks like it might be a little bit too many people, especially people who are going public. So if you start looking at these weed stocks, I think it could potentially turn into a IPO bubble. But yeah, I think it's definitely too early for a lot of a lot of these you know companies to be going public and things like yeah. that. That a lot of them are not really ready for that. They see an opportunity to try to grow to seize it, but mm -hmm. I think to really become a major player in, a, in an emerging industry like this, you have to kind of grow organically. Exactly. That, you gotta have you gotta that foundation. Yep. 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 That's, that's actually a good point for anybody who's listening. A lot of people, I mean, because that's true regards, in regard to any business. A lot of people, they want to skip steps. And so they try to get funding to skip steps. And that's basically yeah. what an IPO is. It's, it's a funding round. So you're getting more money to then invest into something that's not proven yet. So you don't even know if people like your product, but now you're $10 million in debt. That's one of the lectures that 
Google guy was talking, Damon John was talking about, he said that most business, they die because they have too much funding. And so, too much time. yeah, like they're overfunded. Think uh, when you bring that up, it makes me think about uh, around the time that I bought my first property, the engineering company I was working for was looking to go looking to raise capital to uh, do a major acquisition, and then from there was going to do some really you know things, some positive things they thought would uh, generate some great great revenue. But um, I I battled with that for a couple of weeks, you know. Because, you know, you're thinking about this could be an opportunity. I'm at a small firm that could potentially go public and we're talking about five X returns on my investment, you know. Oh, that's, that's, that's exciting, you know. <laughs> and I, I, I battled with it for a few weeks. I even talked to my broker about it. I remember one night we all went bowling as, a, as an office and I told him, I was like, you know, I'm looking to really get into investing, but this opportunity is coming for me. I really don't know what to do. And it kind of goes back to what you said before about betting on yourself. And from there, you know, it, it, it was a risk, but honestly, looking back at it now, I'm very glad I did. Because they're, they're still in a process of raising capital to go public and do what they're, do the things they're looking to do, whereas yeah. I've been able to really kind of create some momentum in my own. What's the craziest thing that you purchased after you achieved your success in real estate? Um, I actually feel like I haven't quite gotten to a point where I could do a crazy purchase yet because there's so much. <laughs> I guess that right now I'm so focused on getting to a point where I can buy apartment buildings and new construction developments that for me, it's, it doesn't even feel like it just yet. Um, I, I have had some fun. Um, um, I've been more focused on experiences more more so than purchases of items you know material things so i've had some really fun experiences over the last few years thank you to you know investing um, from you know my even my first ski trip i mean that's kind of yeah, a lot of it would have to do with my engineering because of the network but it was fun, funded because of my my real estate so um, I don't know what my most craziest purchase would be. I'm gonna have to think about that one. <laughs> last question is, why should second to last question is, what does wealth mean to you? Wealth, what does wealth mean to me? Um, I like, I don't know if you posted this recently or someone did, I think it said wealth is when everyone else, when everyone around you is rich or something like that. To the effect of you have an impact on not just, you know, the transaction you're having, but people around you, like, right, right. Um, whether it's a private or public company, being able to employ thousands or hundreds of people and, you know, see these, especially when you're doing something that helps people realize, you know, their own wealth. So for me, helping my investors generate wealth and leverage their capital, I mean, that's amazing. So. Um, I think it's deeper than finances. I think it's it's more so a quality of life focused on a sense of peace, love, and, and joy. I have another question, and that question is what, this is a bigger pockets question, but I think it's important to ask. And the question is, what do you think separates those from who are successful from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Self-discipline is one. One of the things that really, I don't know, I, I feel like <laughs> maybe it's just because of my experience, but I feel like I come across so many people that see me now and say, oh, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it. And I literally had a, one of the agents tell me last week um, at our at one of our meetings, oh, I haven't made any moves yet. And I asked her why. And she said, because I'm afraid. And I said, what you afraid of? She said, I'm afraid of failing. And to me, I think the, the fear of failure prevents a lot of people from taking action. Right. Um, more so than anything else. I think another thing is it's it's the fear of failure, but also a fear of the unknown. Because so many people, they're not surrounded by people doing it. And so you you don't really know what to expect. And so when you don't know what to expect, right. you just kind of stay where you know what to expect. Like I know what's going to happen if I, go to, if I go to work and get a check. I'm going to get a check. Right, 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 right. That's so, very true. You might struggle, but you'll get a check. Where can yes. people find out more about you? Um, of course, my website, 
uh, Mitchell Realty Group, GRP, MitchellRealtyGRP.com, um, Instagram at underscore Mr. underscore Monopoly, um, and of course, Facebook, Mr. Monopoly on there as well. But the, the website is kind of the best thing that I, most of that stuff comes directly to me or to someone in my office. That we, so. Very cool. So thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah. This, so this is, is my first time having a podcast interview. It's really, it's really fun. You might get some more after this. <laughs> might start, start hitting you up. <laughs> so number 80, my name is Charles Oglesby. If you guys are interested in joining either of the investment clubs or stocks, real estate you can email us at membership at capitaltop.com you can also email me directly at charles at capitaltop.com my name is charles ogles the also known as top millionaire episode number 80 signing off